Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations with the intention of demystifying, destigmatizing, and desensitizing what really gets talked about behind the closed doors of the therapy room. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Selkin. And we're seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. So join us as we dive into the ways that therapy can be connecting not only to yourself, but also to those around you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. So today we have somebody who it's funny because I actually had heard his name. I've heard him on podcasts. uh, I've looked into his retreat centers actually with Danae. uh, And Danae continually surprises me by how she just shows up and says, oh, by the way, we're going to be interviewing this person this week. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we're interviewing Miles Adcox today. And I was like, oh, fancy. You know how I like fangirl stuff. <laughs> You're so much better at that than I, I am. I kind of do. And, you know, shamelessly a little bit that, you know, Miles is someone I've just really looked up to and admired his work for mm-hmm. so long. Um, I have heard about on-site through the recovery community for years. And, you know, I think he's a presence within that community. People mm-hmm. sort of speak his name and speak to um, just the presence that he has. And so long before I started to listen to his podcast and be aware of his work, I had heard about his name and um, the work that he does in the world, but he's just such a presence. And I feel like both of us were really struck by that sitting and um, having this conversation with him. Yeah. He feels like he has such a wealth of knowledge. Like you can really see almost like the lineage that he carries forward, uh, which in a lot of ways I wasn't even really aware of. Um, But he just has such like embedded knowledge, Mm -hmm. embedded awareness that it just like kind of comes through him when you talk to him. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say embedded knowledge because it does feel like there's something about his way of holding space for healing that just feels so embodied. Mm -hmm. You feel a little bit, um, healed by being in his presence and the way he speaks to the journey of being a human, just really, you feel seen and acknowledged in, in the struggle of um, our human journey. Um, And I just, I think he's so lovely. Yeah. I, I talked to one of my best friends right after we talked to him and told her she's from Nashville and I told her, you know, who he was and she didn't know the name, but then I said, you know, where he was from. And she was like, Oh my God. She's like, really? She's like every single person I know in Nashville has done some kind of program. At oh, I was really? Like, really? She's like, yeah, I'm not kidding. Every single person I know has been there. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, we definitely have to get there one day. I felt even more inspired after talking to him. Yeah, agreed. Enjoy, guys. We are very excited today to be talking to Miles Adcox. Um, he is the owner and CEO of OnSite, which is an internationally known emotional wellness site just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. OnSite is known for creating curated personal growth workshops, leadership retreats, and transformational emotional health experiences for the past 40 years. He's also devoted his life to living into these three concepts, empathy over action, love over agenda, and grace over advice. So just hearing those, you can Mm. probably imagine why Danae and I wanted to get him on and have a conversation. (laughs) So excited. We're so grateful to have you here today, Miles. Yeah. Um, Miles, I feel like I've known about you for years, just sort of perfectly. I feel like you're sort of a a known person in the recovery community. And I used to work in um, addiction recovery and 
you know, really though, got to know you through your podcast, um, the unspoken podcast, which you haven't done in a while, but I feel like I just loved so much. And I remember when Vanessa and I were talking about the possibility of doing a podcast, I spoke about your podcast and the conversations that you had on your show and how much I just really resonated with all of the conversations, all of the guests that you had on. Um, and you know, as Vanessa was talking about onsite, um, it sounds like onsite's been around for 40 years, which obviously you couldn't have possibly started it yourself. <laughs> You're too young for that. But I feel like Vanessa and I were just really curious to hear about you and your journey and how you came to do the work that you're you're doing now. So first of all, thank you so much for being here. It, we're really excited to have you. And um, if you could just tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited uh, to be with you guys for a little while. And I appreciate um, you following along with what we've been up to. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, uh, I would have started on site at like four years old. If that would have been <laughs> <laughs> I was in the water in Nashville, but something if he started on site. <laughs> We've got a great legacy and a history that certainly predates me. Um, we were founded by one of the pioneers in the, in the recovery field, a lady by the name of Sharon Weigscheider Cruz, who she um, was one of the co-founding chairs of the ACOA movement. She was one of the early pioneers on codependency, wrote a lot of books on that, and really contribute a tremendous amount to ushering in the idea of family systems and stage two recovery work into the addiction field. Mm. Doing so, it led her to creating what was initially called on-site workshops, training and consulting, I believe. And we had some, uh, she married Dr. Joe Cruz, who um, just passed this year, just a few months ago, mm -hmm. had a long, incredible life. Another pioneer, he was um, in, in recovery. He was one of the co-founders of Doctors and Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was, mm -hmm. the, um, he, he was the doc that intervened on Mrs. Ford and was a founding med medical director at the Betty Ford Center. So oh, wow. Dr. Or Joe and, and Sharon um, uh, were, you know, a big part of the roots of what is now become onsite. And they had it for the first maybe 15 years. And it was out, it was in various places. Uh, but then there was an, an, a second uh, generation, which was another couple, Ted and Margie, um, who had it. And then I came on board in 2007 and acquired it and uh, have been uh, leading it since 2000. Yeah, 2007. So it's I don't know how long it's been now. Not, too early for me to do math but <laughs> you know we we um a lot of people uh, they do think because i i think about five years ago was when i made the decision to well it was a little further back i made the decision to step a little more out um in front mm -hmm. i think part of my career i just i thought it, I, I would be better served to be backstage and 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 lead and support the things i'm passionate about uh from that seat and then at some point, I, you know, through the some of my own personal work, honestly, I finally give myself permission to step out and take this information out into culture. But you know, with OnSite, um, it looks a lot different than it did uh, when I came on board. But we also have some of the great history that um, deserves a lot of reverence and that we grew. So it's always been a, a real rich, therapeutically uh, sound um, offering. And like today, we do a whole lot more than we did in 2007, but I, I definitely have been able to build this on the shoulders of some really smart people. And I'm proud of our history. 
Yeah, I love that. And what, you know, I'm always just so curious about like your personal calling, like what was it that brought you into this work? You know, what was that for you? It's probably not that unique of a a story or a path into our space Mm -hmm. in that it wasn't by, it certainly wasn't by accident. You know, I definitely came through the lens of my own personal experience. I had um, a, a, a real pivotal point in my life where I kind of deconstructed some things that weren't working for me and uh, in rebuilding the and reclaiming the parts of myself that uh, were, were really true to me uh, right. in getting on a path of, of personal and emotional recovery. I fell in love with the change process. I just absolutely was enthralled by it. It was um, like I had gotten oxygen in, uh, and or a new language that I just had gone a lot of my life not knowing. And whenever I got it, I just I knew I had to be a part of it. And so it was through me doing my own work that uh, had me quickly pivot uh, careers and begin to pursue study and then jump into the field of mental and emotional health. Love that. that. Fall in love with it. So true. Yeah. And I do feel like that's what it feels like. And something you say a lot that, you know, therapy and examining your story is not something that anybody needs, but it's something that everybody deserves. And I feel like just spoke so deeply to the way I feel about this work and this exploration that we feel so fortunate to hold space for. Um, and people's journeys. And I'd, I'd love if you'd tell people who are like, well, what is on-site? Like, what do you guys even do there? Will you tell us a little bit about what your programming looks like and what people could expect if they came there? Sure. Absolutely. I um, I just made a transition. I, I know the bio there, it said I was CEO. I just stepped out of the CEO role. So I'm about oh. two months into this new space and trying to figure out what I'm, what my title is these days. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we brought in a new CEO who is, she is just absolutely amazing. And uh, we're really excited for her to lead us in this next chapter. And I'm going to step away and, and finish a book and um, launch a new, uh, a new podcast, which I'm excited to tell you about. We've got Yay! one. <laughs> but on site, um, oh man, I just, I love this place so much. I'm actually here today on campus. Uh, and we are an emotional uh, wellness offering, and we have a few different things that we help facilitate, um, but we're known for our workshops and retreats. So we do short-term workshops and intensives. Uh, we have our main campus here in Tennessee, which is just outside of Nashville on a beautiful 250-acre spot. Mm. And then we have just recently started offering some workshops and retreats at another campus out in Southern California in San Diego County. Mm. And uh, it's beautiful out there as well. Uh, but here uh, we offer short-term intensive therapeutic retreats. And so anywhere from four days to seven days, people come and do kind of a deep dive on their story and what they might be going through. Some of our specialties are emotional and psychological trauma, family systems. And our core, our flagship program is called Living Centered Program. And so it's anybody wanting to kind of uh, move back into and reclaim the truth of who they are. We also have a residential program here that primarily treats uh, trauma and anxiety and depression. It's called Milestones at Onsite. It's on the same campus here in Tennessee. And then uh, we we offer some digital offerings as well. So we've got some online emotional health courses and workshops and um do some, I, I speak and consult. And so we've got a few different things, but it's all kind of in the emotional health and wellness lane. Well, that's actually a, a great lead in because one of the things uh, Danae and I were talking about is just obviously for everybody who's in this space, especially the one-on-one person to person kind of work, what has 2020 looked like for you guys, right? I mean, you have online offerings, which is great, but how has that 
I don't want to say affected because I actually feel like for some people, it's been such an interesting ability to pivot and kind of like re-examine how you offer things. So I don't want to like assume it affected right negatively, but what has 2020 looked like for you? 2020 has been, or was, is, I don't even know where we are. Like, <laughs> what day is that? I don't even know anymore. 2020, even though we're, I know we're in 2021. 2020 uh, was, it was, it was tough and it was beautiful and there were, uh, insurmountable obstacles and um, un, you know undeniable silver lining. Mm-hmm. Um, so many um, aha uh, moments and insights about who we are organizationally. Some really tough conversations as it goes. I mean, you, you both work in our space, and um, you know if you think about an organization or a mission or a company going through a little bit about what uh, going through a season of what our clients go through. Mm-hmm. uncertainty, um, uh, grief, um, trauma, you know, our organization went through all that. And, and I could, you know, get, unpack the details if, if, if you wanted to, or if we had time, but we just went through, I'm sure what a lot of companies go through that do live workshops, live events is everything we've always known got turned on its head. And our, certainly we found ourselves with an uh, uh, inability to control um, what we were doing anymore and that created unpredictable circumstances for our future. And so it provided initially all this fear. Mm-hmm. It was like, who are we without what we know and our ability to do things? And of course, I mean, you know, I'm incredibly loyal to our, our team. I love this team so much. I think um, one of the things I saw as a deficit in behavioral health which is ironic or mental health was that organizational health. In other words, the, the people behind the program or the process is always is sometimes lacking. It doesn't, um, it certainly doesn't get in the way of the great work people put out there, but I always thought that that uh, disconnect uh, certainly trickles into the outcomes of the services we provide. It does catch up with us if the back uh, stage doesn't match what's out front. In doing consulting in our space, I saw that as a common theme. And so we, I got determined to, for, to have an incredibly healthy organization, top to bottom. I wanted one of the best cultures anywhere. And I think we, we accomplished some of that um, over the years. And yet, when, you, when you're in pursuit of creating something really special and beautiful, and then you start to arrive, which we did, we got a reputation for having a really great place to work then you can kind of put your head in the sand about a few things. Mm-hmm. And, we, and I think we did. Um, and boy, did we get a, an awakening, you know? And so I think what, when we had to deconstruct um, certain things due to the hand that we got dealt like everybody else, now we're in the harvest of having done the work. Mm-hmm. So organizationally, I think first it was like, how do we survive this? And, and we did, which is why we're digital and online. But then now we're in this season of like, what did we learn? And what do we want to do differently? How does this define who we are? What parts were working well? What parts are stuck? So that's the silver lining stuff. But that's, I don't know if that was very clear. Um, nothing about 2020 was clear for me. But that was kind of what it was. It's just been this roller coaster with mm-hmm. a lot of challenge and a lot of beauty. Yeah. I feel like I hear you speaking to a little bit of some of the blind spots that I think all of us had sort of, you know, we were confronted with in that last year. And I'm wondering, like, what were some of the things that maybe were your blind spots as an organization that you didn't realize that needed to sort of come to the surface? Thank you. (laughs) 
One of the things that has happened in the mental and behavioral health treatment space, which, you know, we we kind of fall in that category, although we're uh, a little bit of a unicorn in our space and that we have kind of a unique and different offering, is that it got, uh, we started getting consolidated and we think you know, Wall Street paid attention to what was happening in behavioral mental health. They saw this rise in people needing our services, all of our services, and therefore they made a big investment in it and started buying up programs. Mm. And I I watched what happened when, you know, I've been in the field for a couple of decades now, and I saw this interesting conflict between commerce and mission and margin and mission and human service and um, stockholders. And it was just this interesting paradigm where it was, I saw the soul start to get sucked out of our, our, our work. Cause as you know, our work, the, what we all get to do is just nothing short of sacred and there's a spiritual element to it. So I kind of turned the tide internally and I said, you know what, I'm going to fight to keep this place sacred, Mm. but yet we were growing because we were doing good work. And what I, what I didn't realize is that I was putting so much effort into the culture, into the people that I was not putting enough um, structure, corporate structure, organizational structure into place. So that we had clear communication Mm. so that because corporate structure or structure in a business is not all bad. As a matter of fact, it's necessary. Necessary, And we were missing some of that. And we were, what I really, what that creates is you get, um, it can be breeding ground for workaholism because you don't have great systems in place. And we had some of that. It can create a personality-driven organization, which we we had some of that. And it was just getting dependent on us. So that was one of the areas where, and that's why we brought in some operational expertise and people who um, way smarter than I am, higher business acumen, that know how to create a platform and a structure for us to go do the art of what we do well. We didn't have that in place. Um, I think another one was I liked to think that though we were not near as diverse of an organization as I wanted to be, I liked to think that we were proactive and that we were knowledgeable and informed around diversity because we were talking about it. But what I learned is that talking about it was not enough and that we have things in our organization that uh, we're growing in now and that we're pursuing now that I think because of 2020 and a lot of things that came up uh, society and society about racial inequality and injustice, you know, we were paying attention, but I don't think we'd really done the work yet. Mm-hmm. And now I think we're, we're leaning in and doing the work. And it's amazing um, when you, as a company, decide you're going to do that, turn over every stone, you find stuff, mm-hmm. you find microaggressions and things that exist in every community, every organization that I think you can get in. We got in a little denial about because we thought we were progressive in pursuit, but actually that's something we learned. So those are a couple, those are a couple themes, but there's lots more. If you have all day, I could give you a whole <laughs> Well, you know, it kind of feels like in the beginning when you were talking about falling in love with this, like, um, you know, growth and change and just what comes along with that. 
even in an organization, I do feel like there has to be a little bit of that love um, of that process to start turning over some of those stones. I mean, I was in corporate for a long time before switching to wellness. And I think a lot of people up until 2020 thought that because they were knowledgeable and aware, they were they were doing enough. And so I love to hear you say, we realized that actually wasn't enough. And I think mm -hmm. there has to be that love there for people to be able to confront. It's almost like the difference between what people say, right, is being like, I'm um, not a racist or I'm anti-racist or racism, right? And there's a difference and there's a nuance to that. And I, I think what you said is just, I don't know, just perfectly kind of summarizes, like, we have to be in love with this feeling of changing and growth in order to really be open to and excited about the turning over of the stones because it can bring up some icky stuff. And if we're not excited about it, most of us are just going to shut down and keep the stones turned over. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And yeah, it's it, and not to stay necessarily on this topic, but it, it, you know, we, we started making an effort and said, you know what, we want a broader representation of our mm -hmm. staff so mm -hmm. in, in our clientele because we were largely, are still a largely white organization and we wanted people of color, the BIPOC community, we wanted um, more diversity. And so in pursuit of that, we were like, okay, well, let's try to engage the, for instance, the black mental health community. And so we started, we sponsored the black mental health symposium, it was the only white organization to be there, um, represented, you know, rep and we were proud of that. We went two or three years and made some great relationships and conversations and through some of those relationships, we started to make some inroads. And what we learned was there's work to do prior than just trying to um, diversify. First, there's a systemic change that happens so that the organization top to bottom has to be safe for all people, people of color, all people. Mm -hmm. And there are all these little nuances around your processes, your paperwork, your HR that have to be evaluated. And it's all just so important. But for a smaller organization like ours, we got a big reach, but we're still considered a small organization that hasn't had this sophisticated big HR process. Yeah. So important, I think, uh, to do the work. I really appreciate you speaking to how you've done this process of integrating, because I feel like I've sat with so many clients who are struggling with, there's so much awareness that this last year, this really challenging time, um, but beautiful on so many levels. Um, there's awareness that I have, and now I'm struggling to go back to life and to the work that I did and how to like keep the soul alive in the work that I'm doing, or like, how do I bring this into my company, this awareness of how we, we stay present to these things that now we understand from this last year. So I really appreciate you speaking to, this is how we're doing it, you know, mm -hmm. um, that integration process. Mm -hmm. So if we can pivot just a little bit, I'd love to hear a little bit about you personally. You said that you're writing a book and starting a new podcast. Will you tell us a little bit about that, Miles? I uh, loved the, the, the two seasons. I think we did two full seasons and a few bonus episodes of the Unspoken Podcast. And so today, <laughs> thank you for listening. It was just so fun to do. And that was a concept that, you know, I've always been curious in trying to find ways to depathologize the way we communicate what we do to yeah. everyone. And because we can, you know, we're, we're, we're as guilty as any other initiative. We get our own language and our, we kind of speak in code. And thankfully our language and profession is trending right now. Uh, <laughs> so 
uh, it's kind of cool to be in our space. And a lot of people think we're cool now, or used to they wanted to hide. <laughs> but, uh, we've got a long way to go. I mean, would you agree? Absolutely. We're just starting to shift it. We're starting to see potential for a paradigm shift. And yet there's a mountain of need. And there's still a lot of false narrative around the idea of pursuing and asking for help. And so somebody had asked me a while back, they said, what do you, what do you guys really do? And, you know, I probably did a little bit about what, what I, earlier, when you asked the question, I got into, well, we offer this, 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 and they just kind of gave me that blank stare. Well, what does any of that mean? You know? Yeah. And uh, it didn't mean much to them. I figured it would to, to both of you because you're in our world. But I, for whatever reason, that particular day, I said, you know, at the end of the day, we just we kind of create a space where people can say the unsaid, mm-hmm. where they can speak into their narrative. And, and, and honestly, it's, you know, and they said, oh, really? You know, why is that important? I said, it's important because I think it's one of the hardest and one of the most important things we'll ever do in our lives. Mm-hmm. Speak the unspoken and to say the unsaid. Sometimes that's going back into our narrative and rewriting parts that don't serve us or didn't belong to us. Sometimes it's speaking into the present of of where we are. And then sometimes it's just getting clear about where we're going. Mm -hmm. Well, that led to the idea of unspoken and uh, ended up uh, doing a podcast. Of course, I had my dear friend, Ruthie Lindsay join. She's just an angel, got an amazing story. And, uh, and when I got to towards, I stopped unspoken because uh, life got really busy. Onsite got busy. I was getting busy. I started a family. That was the primary reason why I pushed pause on it. And it was requiring a lot of travel. And it was just time I didn't have to allocate. Um, I found myself getting a little bit stretched thin, which was counter to what we were trying to put out there. So yeah. I, you know what? this is beautiful. We've had some of the most amazing conversations. Let's, let's pause. But I never lost my love of a great conversation around the things I'm passionate about, which I can imagine both of you probably relate to, which is why you're doing this podcast, I'm sure. Um, I just love it. I love being able to talk to people about what we do. And so I've wanted to get that back. We did launch a, a podcast out of OnSite called The Living Centered Podcast, which I'm, I'm co-hosting with some friends here, Lindsay Nobles. And, um, but I, that one, uh, I didn't want to be fully dependent on me. I wanted to highlight some of our therapists, our clinicians, some of our friends that have experienced OnSite. And it's it's beautiful. You haven't heard that yet. We launched that. I think we're, I don't know how many episodes, we're maybe about 10 episodes mm-hmm. in. Okay. Really proud of that one. And then um, I've got a, a, a second one that I'm going to be doing that will have a YouTube show related. And it's going to be called Human School. I love that. And uh, that, there's a story that goes with Human School as well, which it, it goes back into my story a little bit to when I was doing some of that personal transformation work. And um, I was introducing myself a few years ago at a table full of business leaders and philanthropists and political people. And they were all, we, we were, it was kind of a little study group that I'd gotten invited to. And they were all fascinating people. I mean, they'd accomplished amazing things. It's quite intimidating. You know, their bios were just, and everybody was going around and talking about how they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. And most of it started with like um, an Ivy League education and this, this, and this. And then now they're doing this great thing in the world. And and to me, at the time, I just said, you know what? Um, I went to uh, treatment and years ago and uh, and now that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That was basically the credentials I gave myself. (laughs) I didn't talk anything about education. I just said, 
did a bunch of counseling. Mm-hmm. And, but then I said, you know, and I, when I look back on it, it really wasn't treatment or counseling at all. It was, it was human school. Mm-hmm. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. And it taught me how to be more humane to myself. And now I'm more humane to other people. Mm-hmm. And I think if the world could go through human school, then I think we'd have a more connected a more empathetic, uh, a better, a better world. And so I, a friend of mine who's, who's uh, got a business that he does branding for a living. And that, he, he said, that's it. That's, mm-hmm. that's your book. And so I, I was about halfway through writing unspoken and I'm still going to write that book, but uh, for whatever reason, 2020 pushed human school to the top of my priority list. And I thought now's the time I want to write about this experience. And so the podcast is going to be called human school. The book's going to be called human school. And um, I'm in, in process. I'm stepping away from onsite a little bit to spend a lot of time writing it, but it will be a little bit, it will, it will have memoirish themes uh, with a lot of stories that I've experienced along the way, but it's going to be a framework. Um, mm-hmm around how to lean in and do a little bit of the work that we invite people into, but hopefully make it digestible for everyone and not fully through a counseling lens. Does that make sense? Yeah. I love it so much, Miles. Um, You know, the story you were telling about sitting at the table and everybody sort of like sharing their stories and feeling a little intimidated is something I love so much about this work because I feel like when we really sit down and we say the unspoken, like you're speaking to, um, Brene Brown has this thing that she always says that's like people, people, people are just people, people, people at the end of the day. And these, these conversations feel like the great equalizers, right? Like they bring us back to our humanity. And um, I just love that, like giving people a framework for how we have these conversations, how we get a little bit more human with ourselves and the people around us. That's just so beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for asking about it. It was good for me to talk about it too, because I don't think I'm just trying, I'm in that phase of clarifying it and even workshopping it in your brain. (laughs) I I mean, I got to get clear on this because I think I'm confusing myself. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. I mean, it's, you're in almost like the, um, the incubation phase, right? It's, it's, it's an exciting time. I mean, I'm actually writing a book too, and it's like this weird process of incubation. It's like, I just had a baby not that long ago and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm kind of pregnant again. This is interesting. It's like this weird process, right? And you're going to birth that child and, and kind of share it with the world. And yeah, it's really exciting. Congrats. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm curious to know. So, uh, you know, now that I'm kind of like pulling together all these pieces, I mean, where do you see, this might be a kind of a big question because you're still in that like formulation stage, but I mean, now that you have brought in a new CEO and you've got somebody who's going to, you know, step in and kind of lead the helm and you're like doing this book stuff. I mean, what do you see kind of your next iteration of like what you're offering? I almost said offering the world that might sound a little big and lofty, but what, what is that for you? I mean, do you have any idea? Are you kind of just feeling it out as you go? Lots of ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm feeling it out as I go. Both. Same, <laughs> the same. I love what I have had the opportunity and continue to have the opportunity to be about. I love participating in a process to support people into living into the best version of themselves. I mean, it's just, yeah. it, it really is the best job in the world. It is hard. I mean, it's hard, you know, as, as you know, it's hard, but it's, it's one of the best jobs in the world. And I think I've gotten a front row seat long enough to see what can happen when the human spirit feels free, mm-hmm. uh, and untethered 
that it's a magical thing. It's what you, if you could curate community that way, that could ripple out and create a world that leaned into that space a little bit more. I think I have a hunch that we we might have a better world. I really believe, I really deeply believe that, that I, I think if there were more emotionally intelligent people around the table of our education systems, our business systems, our, our politics, our, our religious um, offerings, on and on and on. I, I really think the world could could be a, a better place for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to contribute to and be a part of. In other words, I think I've spent, I've done my, um, I suppose I've done my time. It hasn't been done time. But I, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in my field offering, helping offer this great service to people. And there will always be a need for this service. And I want to continue to have a level of expertise by staying in the trench with supporting people that might come to one of our resources. But now I'm ready to not sit back and wait until they the, the culture needs us, but to take what we do to culture in a more creative and innovative way. So I'm hoping the next chapter of what I get to do is finding a way to take mental health a little more mainstream mm-hmm. and to introduce it into bigger circles, more conversations. And it's a big, it's a lofty goal, uh, but it seems like a worthwhile pursuit mm-hmm. and one I'm passionate about and excited about. And so we've got lots of ideas, as I said earlier, about what that's going to look like. Um, but I'm excited to kind of see how it unfolds. And I, it's really interesting that it happened now. I'm, I'm, uh, I've got a two and a four-year-old, two and an almost four-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I got a little bit of a late start being a dad. And um, it's what I bought, one of the things I've always wanted. And, and here it is. And, I've, and I'm finally in a season in my career where I I can go pursue some stuff and not just be uh, fully anchored here with what we're doing. And there's a little bit of a conflict there. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to sort through that because the one thing I'm not willing to do is, is miss that. I want to be present at home first. That's got to come first. It's what I want. And it's, but yet I may start, um, I may write, speak and go do all that kind of thing. And that's going to be an interesting balance. And I, and I can be, I, I love people. I love being out front, but I also can be a little bit shy and a little bit introverted and can be just as happy, you know, with a horse by myself on the farm. So it's going to be interesting to try to see how comfortable I am moving a little further into a public um, element. Mm-hmm. I also didn't mention this, but I, I've spent the last decade working specifically with people in public professions, mostly through um, entertainment and athletics. And I, it's been fascinating to almost do a case study yeah. on the difficulty of the public profession and what comes with it. And here I am basically saying, I think I might sign up for part of that. Mm. So, so, so I'm in a little bit of a identity crisis thinking, oh, do I really want that part of it? Can I do this and leave that out? Yeah, can I just take <laughs> this part of it, but leave this part of it? <laughs> Selfishly, I'm thrilled to hear that you're doing this, Miles, because I feel like I, I get so excited every time I listen to you speak. And, you know, we have a mutual friend, um, my friend Jess Martindale um, has worked with you. And I feel like I just, you know, gushed over your podcast and all of the conversations when we met. And she was like, oh, yeah, and that's just Miles. Like, he is just such a beautiful soul. And I think, you know, 
you talk about what is possible for us as a human race. And I believe you, like I'm excited and on board. And I think that, yeah, we, we need you to be of service in that way. So I understand. And yes, please take do a call it anyway. <laughs> take the call. Incredibly meaningful. You know, it's interesting too. It's like when I see, I feel like I've heard different iterations of, of what you're saying. Um, and I, I wonder if part of it too is, and I might be like thinking and almost like pontificating right now, but I, I wonder if part of it is such a, um, there's such a generational and cultural shift that I see happening right now with people who are, let's say, I don't know, who who's in charge now. So like 30s, 40s, 50s, um, who are not looking at industry the same way as the generation prior. They are not looking at what it means to be a leader the same way as the generation prior, right? Like there is really truly this different look or um, belief that there's enough for all that's starting to bubble to the surface, right? And it's it's breaking down this, this what I see as a, the generation prior, their belief that it was all about hoarding at the top um, mm. and, and keeping it in this way. Like we have to all stay in our structure, stay in our box, stay in this way that was created right now, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, whether it's corporations, um, we all kind of functioned in this same way. We ascribed the same belief, which was like, stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not enough for everybody. So take what you're given and be grateful for it. And I think there's people like you who are really starting to challenge that belief and say, no, there is plenty of pie to go around. And actually the pie tastes so much better when we all have a piece um, and just pushing that. And, and it's starting to really, I don't know, I'm just watching it ripple out. And, and I think this mental health explosion has been a part of that. So mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a question attached to that, I guess it's just me kind of like thinking through what you were saying, where it's like, we're really on the cusp of it. And it's, it's kind of beautiful to watch. It's hard to watch, right. The dismantling of old Mm. things, but it's beautiful at the same time. Um, So I just, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm just saying that to say, I appreciate you attempting to be a part of that too. You know, I think, thank you. I think it's something we should all, we could and should all be proud of. I was trying to look at some statistics I saw the other day. Let me see if I can find them. Um, It says the headline is defying fears about lockdowns, suicides in the U.S. saw the largest annual drop in decades in 2020. Wow. Um, This this story includes statistics around suicide in the U.S. Um, Last year, the number of U.S. suicides fell nearly 6%, the largest annual decline in at least four decades, according to early government data. The drop defies expectations of the impact of lockdowns on mental health and valid fears that they would cause an increase in suicide. Um, So as far as it's hard to determine what exactly caused the drop, but they think it could be a combination of factors like an increase in availability of telehealth services. Um, initiatives already in place and aimed at reducing the U.S. suicide rate and the phenomenon. Yeah, I won't, I won't read the whole thing, but basically the next part is the phenomenon of people talking about mental health. Yeah. Is think about the, in 2020, when everybody went home, everybody felt this shared level of stress and empathy started to rise mm-hmm. And everyone started to speak out on social channels. And you saw all these people from like online influencers to the person next door. It wasn't just us, mental health professionals saying this stuff matters. It was everybody was saying this stuff matters. And 
uh, I, I think that started to permeate, hopefully, and reach people that felt alone, that felt overwhelmed. And so now we also know we've got a, a tremendous amount to work to do. And there's other numbers around anxiety and depression, other things that have gone up mm-hmm. due to the pandemic. But that's a hopeful message. Oh my gosh. That fact, huge. I haven't heard that. That's like, yeah, that just totally realtored the way that I've been thinking about it. Wow. I mean, and yet it doesn't surprise me as I yeah. hear you say it, you know, Vanessa and I facilitate groups in something called the TAT lab, which is essentially like group therapy, group processing that we've been doing virtually since like right after the pandemic started. And, you know, I was, we were having a reflection process group last weekend and talking about just like all of the takeaways of this last year. And we were saying like, would we have been open to do this, right? Like would so many people be in here in community connecting with one another? I don't know if the world hadn't shut down the way it had. And in that way, to your point, I feel like there's a lot of gifts and that we really have become viscerally aware of how much we need each other and how much we need to connect in this way. And the shared, like you said, it's this, I don't know, again, generationally, I don't know if there's anything we've ever experienced, especially in the West, that has connected us all on a level up. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are. The bottom line is we were all in this shared boat together, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody had to go home. Everybody had to shut down. Um, You know, everybody had to play mom and work person, you know, doing all the things like I have to do the homeschooling and I have to do the cooking and I have to do the work and, you know, everybody was in it together. And there is a community feeling that came mm-hmm. out of that, 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 you know, Danae and I talk about this a lot about the importance of the community versus the individual, right. And um, how we've gotten away from that as a culture. And now all of a sudden you're seeing it come back and what that has done for mental health. And yeah. Wow. That's like, my brain's kind of exploding right now. <laughs> so happy to hear that. Yeah. yeah that story that story is not necessarily getting told because the, the, the story that that sells a little better is the one that says, and it's true that we'll be uh, cleaning up and or navigating the mental health impact of the pandemic for years to come. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's been some wins here that mm-hmm. aren't getting talked about. We just reflected on some of them. And I'm sure there's more in that we saw on display, and we shouldn't ignore this, just how deep the divide can be when people are in trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and yet there's also been a coming together around the human experience. It was a little bit forced, you know, because we were all kind of like swimming upstream for the first time. But people who felt like they've been swimming upstream alone for years, suddenly had a lot more people in the river. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't just the, you know, those of us that are used to being on the bank, throwing life vests out for people, we were in the river too. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And uh, so I just think it's a, there's a great opportunity, I, I believe, with the right intent, the right leadership, uh, the right pursuit of I think what we get to deliver to the world that we could come collectively out of this thing, maybe better than we came into it, which is really exciting. This makes me feel so hopeful and excited. Um, I, you know what I wanted to ask you Miles, while we have you, I feel like one of the things that I loved hearing you talk about um, on your unspoken podcast and listeners, if you haven't listened to that podcast, it's so good. Listen to it. And I can't wait for the next one. It's so, so good. But um, our little boys are very close in age and, you know, you talking about 
becoming a parent around the time that I was becoming a parent was just like really supportive <laughs> during that period of my life. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are for parents during this time and just like this last year and like how you're holding space for your family um, and families that you talk talk to you like what are your thoughts on raising kids in this moment in history yeah and I have a one-year-old too so I'm right there with you I'm like, any thoughts uh, hey what a question why did you do that right? <laughs> and he tell us all Miles, I could use some support yeah. about it again uh, <laughs> do it. Uh, no I think it's so important to talk about I um when when we were talking just before I jumped on to to the interview uh I was asking Joe Carroll in you know about the podcast and everything and she let me listen to a segment and you were coaching someone or, or working with somebody and I was like is that kind of the format and she was like yeah I think you know she listened to a couple of things she said yeah that's they kind of will bring people on talking and I said so am I going to get to get coached today <laughs> we're bringing nope. up a surprise nope, us you to coach us <laughs> um, and I, but I was you know I was like oh I was like cool yeah <laughs> should be amazing we should do that to some of our guests just kidding we're actually gonna we're gonna give you a therapy session about your life <laughs> i could use it but um when yeah so i i feel i feel uh very humbled as a parent uh definitely am not gonna hang my shingle out there as a parenting expert in any way but i will say uh that getting a, a little bit of a late start uh, on the hills of what i've had the great fortune to consume uh, meaning all the content that we swim in all the time and my own personal work is really paying off yeah. uh, in, in being a parent right now. And I've tried to be cautious of reading parenting strategies. Um, I want to, because it gives my brain comfort to think about how I'm screwing up. And I do read some of that, but I try not to read it because it sets up this expectation that I'm supposed to be doing it a certain way. Mm. And it's not necessarily I'm learning what I'm doing, but more about how I'm being. Mm -hmm. Kids, it is fascinating. You think about it, we deliver presence all day long with what we do. We try to pull people into the presence. We try to mirror and listen with a presence. And they are masters of it. They are just in the moment. And uh, nothing pulls me more into the moment than mm -hmm. my I'm just starting when I'm with them, I notice more things. And when I don't, they tell me about more things. Be, we can be moving from point A to point B, and I've got to do this, 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 and this. We've got to get the kids here, here, and here, and it's just, Daddy, Daddy, look, <laughs> birds. That happened. <laughs> it's going to make me cry. It's so true, it's though. so true. Birds, and I will stop and look at the birds. Yep, Sam. Oh. And that tells me that I'm sure I'm messing it up, but that's doing something right. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, we've got a, one of our clinicians here, a great trauma therapist named Carlos. I hope you get a chance to meet him someday. He would be a great guest on your show. Um, he leads a lot of our programming, but he always says it's not about the rip, it's about the repair. Mm -hmm. And I think that has been one of my greatest tools as a parent so far is I'm not afraid uh, to repair. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm not walking on eggshells trying to be perfect. Not all the time. Some of the time I do. I fall for the trap. of, But for the most part, um, I'm, I'm not doing this 
perfect, but I feel like I'm doing it well. And when I'm not, I readjust and I get down on their knees and my knees and I look at my kid and say, you know what, daddy could have done that better. Or let me tell you what's going on with mommy and daddy right now. We're having this not about you. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I don't know if that was helpful, but it's just, it's such a touching, humbling experience. Um, And I really do feel like I become a better parent by becoming a better human being. See, I knew I needed to ask you about parenting, Miles. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, So we have some questions that we ask all of our guests at the end. We'd love to ask you if we could. Um, The first question is, who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, um, influences up to this point along your journey? I've had some really good ones. I'm going to talk about my dad. Hmm. I said this to him that I think he's doing his best parenting right now. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, he is showing up in ways that I, I, I'm in awe with and don't even recognize sometimes. We will be at a table full of people and he will lean in and be the most vulnerable guy in the room. He's always been a mentor because he's always operated out of ethics and integrity. Um, And he taught me a lot uh, about, he's a really smart intellect. He taught me a lot about that kind of thing. But he would now say, um, uh, we just didn't do emotion in in my family. I didn't get that imprint. So, but I think to see him now in what some might say would be his kind of final chapter, you know, this, the the last few chapters of his life, start to pursue a better relationship with his family. Um, He's been willing to do some of his own work. He came out here and did a program. And that's my kind of teacher. That's who I want to follow. I want to be mentored by there. There, don't get me wrong. There's really smart people inside our space that have taught me great things, but I really want to learn from the mentors who are trying to live into knowledge mm. versus teaching. Mm. And I really had trying to do that. And so, and so I started with him. I could have said the same thing about my mom too. I'm really proud of her, how she's showing up. Our family, I just am, am really fortunate. Uh, my mom and dad um, were really, really reaching. I'm, I'm glad I first, I'm fortunate to still have them. A lot of people don't. I'm fortunate to have a pretty good relationship with them. We've had our complications and challenges over the years, but right now we're in this sweet season of uh, redemption and repair. And it's just, um, yeah, it's beautiful. So I'm going to go with mom and dad on my mentor list today. I love that. Beautiful. I love that. It also gives us, I think as, as we're all sitting here as parents, it gives us something to look to, to realize like you can always be pivoting in your parenting style. You could always, like Danae always says, there's always an opportunity for a U-turn, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in your seventies and your children are grown, you can change your parenting style and it can have an effect on your children. Absolutely. You know, it's never too late to make those repairs. I, I know that. it's beautiful. Um, okay. So the second question would be, where do you find yourself in flow? So what is that thing you can do where you just hours will go by and you wake up and you're like, Oh my God, what time is it? <laughs> mm. For me, it would be anything outside. I really enjoy being outdoors. I like, um, lately I've been really into bees. Mm-hmm. So when I'm working with being around my, the bees, I just lose myself. 
in it. Yeah. Always been that way around horses. Yeah. Uh, this morning, uh, we, I woke up and said, used to, I would have no time for this kind of stuff because I was just meeting, 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 meeting all day long. But uh, yesterday I was on campus all day and I ran into some clients and guests that were here for various things. And a couple said, you know, we uh, haven't seen the horses much since we've been here. And uh, we move, we, we rotate horses based on pasture. So they'll eat some grass here. We'll move them over to another pasture. And so they're in a back pasture where from the main campus, you really don't see them unless you take a pretty good walk back towards that direction. So they mentioned that. Well, I immediately thought I could either ask them to walk back to that pasture or what if we could create an experience? And so I lost myself last night in creating this experience. I just got, I started thinking about what could we do to curate something that would show the whole community, the horses in it, be metaphorical to what they're experiencing here on campus. And so I started cooking up this idea and this morning um, we, we, we pulled it off. We did. So I, I went back, um, talked to our lead clinician running this program. Uh, she was doing a lecture this morning on forgiveness and affirmation, mm -hmm. which ends with this really cool experiential exercise. I won't, I won't tell people because I wanted to experience it if they ever come here. And they did that outside. We're doing a lot of stuff outside just due to COVID safe. And, and right when they finished that uh, affirmative experience, um, we had them turn around and face the fence, which is where the pasture is. And you're, you're not looking at anything, but a beautiful green field. It's a great backdrop. But you're just, And ask them to kind of be in silence and reflect on what it felt like to be affirmed in who you really are. Mm -hmm. And the word that kept coming up for people was free. If, and which we couldn't, have, you know, it couldn't have curated that better because mm -hmm. that's where we hoped they would land and they landed there. So it felt free, it feels free to be here. And I was, what they didn't know was that I was at the back corner of the property and I had, I propped those gates open and I let uh, nine horses come out into that pasture at a full run and they couldn't see them, but first they heard them. You could hear the hoofbeats and they were coming towards them. And then all of a sudden they topped the hill and they, you saw a herd of nine horses running straight towards you. And it was, anyway, it was just a beautiful metaphoric representation of what they just experienced it. And it was kind of like, okay, they just baked an incredible cake. Now let's put some icing on it. But that whole thing, like this morning, I lost myself in it. I was just, having the time of my life. It was so fun. I love it. Beautiful. <laughs> um, the next question is what breaks your heart? Liz? When I see, well, injustice breaks my heart. Something that really hits me hard is when I see or experience people getting bullied mm -hmm. in any kind of way. Um, I usually go to anger and want to protect that pretty quick, but there's first, there's this tender kind of sadness that pops up in me uh, to see someone on the receiving end of that. So it breaks my heart when I see somebody get bullied in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. I go to that same place too. It's like an immediate, it's like being a little kid. I was always that kid. Somebody's getting bullied and I got in the middle, like, Oh, big tough guy, huh? <laughs> it's amazing how quickly that gets triggered back. <laughs> Uh, okay, so this is a tough one. What's your favorite food? Favorite food. It is a tough one. 
I've got lots of favorite foods and a lot of them I can't eat right now because I'm on this weird diet trying to sort out some health stuff. Um, let's see. So I'm eating really clean, boring food right now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up here in, in Tennessee in a little small town and we always did uh, what they call meat in three. Um, a lot of people had never heard of that in different parts of the world. But you can actually go to restaurants in, in different parts of the country where you say it's a meat and three restaurant. And it's basically a, a, a protein and three vegetables. But the vegetables are cooked like there's nothing vegetable in them. Other time. <laughs> lots of lard, lots of other meat bits, lots of yes. sugar. Yeah, all oh, yes. good. Yes. But I still probably, there's something sentimental to go and and like you get grandma's meatloaf, mac and cheese, green beans that have been cooking and baking all day, and uh, and like sweet corn. Um, yeah. That's some kind of meal like that would probably be one of my favorite foods. Mm, meat and three, Beautiful. love it, love it. <laughs> We're googling that right now. Like, what's right? And I look into this meat. It is a thing. It is a thing. <laughs> Actually, well, my girlfriend who's from Nashville is staying with me right now. So I'm going to go out there and be like, how do you feel about meat and three? She's going to tell me oh, about girl. meat and three. Oh, girl, let me tell you. <laughs> well, so grateful. Miles, I, you know, this just truly means so much to me. I feel like I've um, just been so supported by the way you show up in the world. And I'm so excited to hear that you are going to be doing more and um, letting us have some more access to you because your spirit truly is just so enriching for everyone who gets to hear you speak. So thank you for who you are. Thank you for giving us this time and letting our listeners hear a little bit of your magic. Um, where can people find you if they want to just hear more and dig in a little deeper to the work that you do? Thank you, Danae. You've got a great way of affirming. I let her do that. She's so good with those words of affirmation. <laughs> I'm more of an acts of service person. <laughs> oh, it's my love language. <laughs> I know. I love it. I listen to you. I'm like, oh, you're so beautiful in that. So, yeah, it, was, it was awesome. Um, oh, oh, sorry. I lost myself in there. There you go. <laughs> It, uh, at Miles Edcox, I, I am starting to get, uh, thanks to my newest colleague, friend Abby, who's over here, starting to get more active on social media. We're going to give that a go. So it's at Miles Edcox on Instagram and Twitter and all the things. And then um, I've got a website. We're getting ready to redo that. And But you can find me at OnSite too, at Miles Edcox, at OnSite Workshops. Awesome. Thank well, you so much. We're excited for all the books and the podcasts and all the things that are happening. Can't wait. Congrats on and good luck on your book and congrats on this podcast. This is the first season, right? Are you doing seasons or are you just doing it? Yeah, we're in the second now, with the beginning of the second. We just started. Amazing. Yeah. Excited to learn more about it. Well done. Thank, Thank you, you for doing this, Miles. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Instagram at Vanessa S. Bennett and at Danae Logan Selkin. 